We're going to read now um, from Acts chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Father, as we study your word, 
We pray by your Spirit you would help us to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ this morning, and so be changed to be more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. And add my welcome, especially if you are a visitor, um, you're very welcome amongst us this morning. Um, and I hope you kind of really enjoy your time uh, as we chat over coffee afterwards. Um, but I have to warn you and the rest of us that what we're starting with is not going to be enjoyable. You'll see there's an outline on the back of the sheet. And the opening topic this morning is the violent persecution of Christians. It's a real-life situation where Christians are hunted down by violent opponents intent on their harm. And of course, we still see it in the news today. I don't think I'll ever forget the moment when um, I first became aware of that um, ISIS video showing uh, a line of Christians all wearing orange jumpsuits about to die. I haven't watched the video. I don't want you to watch the video if you haven't seen it. But I'm well aware of what it contains. Just brutal violence, as they're murdered on camera. At the time I heard about it, I was at theological college at the time. It was a sunny day. We'd spent the morning studying God's amazing character, and we were just gathering in the chapel to pray when someone said, our brothers and sisters are being murdered on video in the Middle East. At the time, ISIS, or IS now, they were actually going from house to house. They were asking people, are you a Christian? Is there a Christian here? And if people said yes, they'd be murdered, either in front of their families or lined up so they could capture it on video. And of course, that's not the only time that Christians are treated like that. And it's true of other minority groups and religions as well. I mean, at the moment, daily threats continue on Christians in Syria. Why am I starting with such horrible stories of Christians being murdered? Well, because that's where our passage starts. Page 917, chapter 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. As Emma said, this morning we're, we're meeting Saul, the arch enemy of the gospel, a determined, violent, anti-Christian zealot. Now, actually, we have met him once before. Do you remember end of chapter 7? It was the first Christian martyrdom and Saul was standing there, holding the coats. 8 verse 1, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. 8 verse 3, it didn't stop there. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We just think about that for a moment. ISIS is the right comparison. This is house after house. It's the bang, bang, bang on the door or the kicking down the door as Saul and his heavies come storming in and drag off not just fathers, but mothers, brothers and sisters, men and women. And he's not just interested in getting people into prison. Verse 1 of chapter 9 again. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul was someone who wanted to kill Christians, kill the message by killing its followers. Listen to this, later in Acts, uh, chapter 26, don't turn there, but Saul gives his testimony um, in court. He describes what he did like this. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
And I punished them often in, the, in all the synagogues. I assume that's flogging. And tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Raging fury, murderous threats, men and women. There was no mercy when it came to Saul. I think it's easy to forget that. Lots of us will know that Saul goes on to become Paul, the great apostle Paul, a guy who writes much of the New Testament letters to churches. So he's got two names, but it's the same man. Saul is Paul. And if you know where he ends up, well, it's very easy to underestimate where he began, to kind of airbrush out his prior life. But Luke tells this story three times in the book of Acts. So we don't miss the point. You see, we need to think of Saul as the most steely-eyed of violent extremists. He was a highly trained, hugely able, violently angry religious zealot. And he was absolutely committed to destroying Christianity, these early shoots. And so if we were meeting Sunday morning in the first century in Damascus, well, this introduction wouldn't just be kind of unenjoyable, it would be terrifying. Saul was heading their way. Why Damascus? Why are we there? Let's just get our bearings uh, in the book of Acts. Um, so we'll begin with a picture on the screen. Again, I've, I've marked up there three ovals, three kind of big areas, because they're the three areas that Jesus promised back in Acts 1, chapter 1, verse 8. He promised that his message would break through each of those barriers, geographical, cultural, ethnic, spiritual barriers. And in chapters 1 to 7, we were all about Jerusalem. The message was spreading there, and that attracted opposition. And so Stephen, chapter, end of chapter 7, was killed for his witness to Jesus. Now, in God's power, his death kicks off more persecution, which leads to the spread of the message of Christianity to Judea and Samaria. That's where Damascus is. And in chapter 8, verse 4, if you look there, chapter 8, verse 4, those who are scattered went about preaching the word. And so, just as Jesus promised, the next area is kind of being filled. People are being saved. Surprising people are being saved. An Ethiopian eunuch, even some Samaritans. At which point, enter Saul. Now, I know it's a stick man, but don't be distracted. Don't think that's trivializing it. Saul was a properly scary man, a formidable, violent opponent. There's no way he's going to stand by while this message about Jesus' name starts to spread further afield. He sees Christianity as a kind of a parasite, a virus within Judaism, something that needs to be stamped out once and for all. And perhaps most scary of all, and this is where the, the comparison with ISIS breaks down, he wasn't some guerrilla fighter. He wasn't hiding in the mountains doing the occasional raid when no one was watching. No, he has official backing. So the established religious authorities, the high priests, who themselves were given permission, so had the backing of Rome, well, they've given him permission for this campaign. Did you notice that? Look again at verse 2. 
Saul, breathing these threats and murder, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Getting that written backing from the high priest was a big deal. It gave Paul authority, Saul, sorry, authority in all those synagogues where Christians were currently witnessing and participating. Well, Saul's got the authority, so he grabs the letters, grabs the chains, gets the soldiers, and he sets off to permanently stop this. We've seen this kind of attempt to stop the gospel expansion before, but this is perhaps the scariest of all. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to be a Christian in Damascus? I said I've never forgotten the moment I heard about that beheading on camera. And actually, I was hundreds of miles away. I was far removed. But these Christians in Samaria, they were right in the thick of it. I mean, some of them had just recently buried Stephen, chapter 8, verse 2. They, they were grieved and shocked at his stoning. And now the same violent enemy who, who orchestrated that is now marching down the road. And he is fuming, raging with religious hatred, backed by the high priesthood. So they're not going to stop him determined to hunt down and drag back every last Christian to Jerusalem for trial and death. You might think the whole chapter was about Saul, but actually it's just at this moment, verse 3, that we meet the far bigger power in the chapter, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. See, in this chapter, Jesus is the active agent Saul ends up, after verse 2, being the recipient. This is a chapter about what Jesus does. Jesus does things to Saul. Jesus does things in Saul. And later on, Jesus will do things through Saul. So our first point, all our points actually, on the back of the handout, are not about Saul at all, really. They're about Jesus. What do we see about Jesus in this chapter? And here's the first thing. The sovereign Lord Jesus stops this terrifying enemy, Saul, Sovereign Lord Jesus stops this terrifying enemy, Saul. Let me read from verse 3. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to emphasize what a shocking moment this must have been for Saul. I mean, blinding lights from heaven, and this literally is a blinding light from heaven, that, that's shocking enough. Audible voices from heaven don't happen often in the Bible, and every time they do, it's hugely significant. But actually, it's not just the light or the sound it's the question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then when Saul asked for clarification, the answer must have been terrifying. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard to fathom the shock he must have felt. Because Saul was confident no one was there to stop him. I mean, Jesus was just a man like Stephen, he was dead and buried. He was back in Jerusalem. He was just a fraud, a pretender. 
Nothing to do with the real God and his purposes. I mean, he's an irrelevance, a nuisance. Just get rid of him. But as I said at the start of this series, it is possible to be so, so wrong about Jesus. The Bible's clear that many, many people are going to experience this kind of conversation. For most people, it will be just after they die. A blinding light. The question, who are you, Lord? The answer, I am Jesus, whom you ignored or you rejected. But Saul has the confrontation right here and now in his life on the road to Damascus. And it's a moment so shocking that, verse 9, have a look, for three days in total blindness he didn't eat or drink. You see, Jesus is actually alive and risen. That's where he is on the diagram. He's the king of the world, ruling at the right hand of the Father. So just imagine the horror, the the sorrow, the grief. This passionate, zealous Saul, so eager to please God in his zeal, finds out he's been killing God's children, rejecting the Son of God himself. I wonder if he remembered any of the names he'd hunted. I, remember if he, I wonder if in those three days in blackness he, he thought back to Stephen's speech, realizing it was all true. But actually, remember, the focus is not on Saul. We don't actually hear about his feelings. The focus is on Jesus and what he's doing. Because here's the thing. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords says, stop, When he says stop, whether it's in someone's life or in a wave of persecution, it stops. Those puny letters of authority that Saul was waving, his determined attempt to stop the gospel expansion, it's just no match for the king of kings. We've said before, you can't stop Jesus. But Jesus can stop anyone. Just look down at the passage again to see the turnarounds um, By the time we get to verse 8, all the expectations were that Saul would kind of march into Damascus in all authority. They'd be scanning the houses for Christian collaborators. How, in verse 8, does he actually enter Damascus? Well, utterly blind, led by hand. And in verse 6, whose permission does he turn up in Damascus with? Well, not the high priest, but the king of kings. Verse 6, rise and enter the city And whose agenda is now in charge? Well, Jesus says, you will be told what to do. It's striking, isn't it? This is the head of the secret police. This is the commander of the armies of ISIS. This is the the chief of persecution, meekly walking into town. The town he'd threatened, not persecuting anymore, not leading anymore, not eating anymore, not seeing anymore. Just following orders. Pretty soon, he'll be preaching the very message he tried to silence. See, this story shows the absolute sovereignty of King Jesus. We've seen it before. Chapter 4, the authorities were trying to stop the apostles speaking in Jesus' name. Stop, 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 stop. But they didn't, because Jesus has his own agenda. The message must spread. And same here. You cannot stop God. Jesus has promised his message will go global. And so it does every time. 
Now, does this mean that Jesus always steps in to save his people from persecution? I wonder if you're thinking that question. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lovely image, actually, isn't it, up on the screen? I mean, it's badly drawn, but just think of it. The Lord of Lords rules over his people, the shepherd king, protecting them, stopping the enemy on the road. There's an amazing moment in Lord of the Rings. Sorry if you haven't seen it. Um, but uh, Gandalf... Uh, they're on a bridge, and there's this terrifying, fiery enemy coming to kill Frodo and the gang. Um, and Gandalf, with all his power, says, you shall not pass. It's like, just like this. Jesus saying, you will not enter that town to kill my people. Stop. But the thing is, the thing is we, we don't see that today, do we? Like Those people in the orange jumpsuits, those Christians were beheaded. Churches are bombed, pastors are kidnapped and locked up. So what's going on? Has Jesus lost control now? Is this just a made-up story? Is it that we lack faith and the church isn't praying enough? Well, no, no, no. Remember, even in Acts, Stephen was stoned. A great persecution broke out in chapter 8. Jesus protected Stephen, not by stopping the stones, but by welcoming him home for eternal safety that day. Through the book, we'll see lots of persecution that Jesus doesn't stop, but works through. Jesus hasn't promised to stop persecution. Actually, the opposite. He says in the Gospels that if they opposed me, they'll oppose you too. But what Jesus has promised is that his message, will, his message of forgiveness will continue to spread. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So the confidence we have with persecution is that it doesn't thwart King Jesus as he advances his plans. Amazingly, by the end of the chapter, Jesus hasn't just stopped the arch enemy. He's using him, turning him around to be the main preacher to the nations. So there's point one. Sovereign King Jesus stops this terrifying enemy, Saul. How do we respond to that personally? What does it have to do with your life? Well, however intimidating the opposition, Jesus is bigger. I don't know who it is who who maybe intimidates you with their, their kind of hostility to the good news of Jesus or what the Bible teaches. It's a great thing to chat about over coffee or in small groups could be really close to home, so a work colleague, neighbor, family member. I mean, I'm guessing we don't have someone quite of Saul's caliber in our friendship networks, but, but sometimes people can be so cold to Jesus or so hot with anger at Jesus and what he teaches or, or just so determined to make Christians look silly, to catch them out, to prove how wrong they are. It can be intimidating. It can be hard to mention Jesus by name. But he rules above us right now. On a bigger scale, I think this, this episode is helpful as we, as we face some really big kind of anti-Christian trends in our generation and cultures. So the seemingly unstoppable strength of secularism in the West generally, in this country specifically, the chilling effect of political correctness, In fact, you're not allowed to talk about eternal things. You're definitely not allowed to disagree with people. The immense social pressure there. 
Perhaps it will help us where there's opposition from other religious groupings. Even some, some um, established churches, as they loosen their grip on scriptural mourning, uh, moorings, will increasingly start to dislike some of what Jesus says and may dislike that message spreading. Whatever the opposition from whatever quarter, Jesus rules. They are living in his world. So that's point one, the sovereign power of King Jesus to stop this terrifying enemy. But actually, as we go on to to point two, there's something else we see of Jesus in this episode, and it's something extraordinarily beautiful. We see the extraordinary grace of Jesus Christ. Point two, gracious King Jesus saves this undeserving enemy, Saul. You see, Jesus doesn't just stop, Paul, stop Saul dead. I mean, literally, he could have. <laughs> Remember Ananias and Sapphira, if you were here in chapter 5? They drop dead instantly for lying to the Holy Spirit. And here's a man who's killing Christians and persecuting Jesus. Did you notice that, by the way? Verse 4, that's how Jesus puts it. Uh, sorry, verse, um, verse 5. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Why does Jesus say that Saul's persecuting him? Well, because the church is Jesus' body. He lives in us. He's, he's totally united with his people. You think I mind when I see brothers and sisters being killed in Syria? Or well, Jesus feels it as a direct attack on him. Why are you persecuting me? And so it is an extraordinary thing that Saul is not struck down in instant judgment. Our God is a consuming fire, and yet this blinding light doesn't destroy Saul. Amazingly, rather than giving him the kind of chapter 5 Ananias treatment, he sends a different Ananias to save him. Just think about that for a moment. The Lord Jesus chose to save his direct enemy, a man who had actually declared war on him, a man who killed his dear follower, Stephen. Jesus doesn't send an assassin to ensure revenge. He sends a missionary so that Saul might become a Christian, might be safe for eternity, might have the Holy Spirit and be united with God himself. Just look at it with me, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. As a real surprise, Jesus lays out what Ananias is, is supposed to do. And, and normally in the Bible, if Jesus unmistakably appears in a vision, calls someone name, someone's name, Ananias, and they say the right thing, here I am, Lord, and then Jesus tells them, this is what you're to do, normally the next step is they go and do it. Just look at verse 13. But Ananias answered, uh, hang on, Lord. <laughs> Lord, I've heard about, uh, a lot about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority for the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. It's a really striking moment. Jesus is very clear and specific in verses 11 and 12. But nevertheless, Ananias wants to double check. Are you sure you've got the right person, Jesus? 
He's kind of haggling. Hang on, Lord. Hang on, Lord. Do you realize who this guy is? This is the guy who's declared Christians public enemy number one. He's already committed evil against believers. The last thing I want to do is go and visit him. Isn't it quite useful if the Christian hunter is blind? And you can understand why Ananias is so reluctant. Again, it gives us a sense of what Saul was actually like. It is like Isis. The last thing Ananias wants to do is help the enemy. But the Lord Jesus is so gracious. He is so, so, so gracious. Just look. Verse 15, he still says, go. And so verse 17, Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight He rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. It's an amazing episode. This believer, Ananias, who was terrified of the man, goes and graciously speaks to him. He lays his hands on the man who would have chained those hands if he'd had a chance. But actually, more amazing than that is the role of the Holy Spirit, who's given to Saul, the Christian killer, the brutal opponent, showing that he's fully Included. Do you think Samaritans are extraordinary? You think a eunuch is extraordinary? Well, this is the most shocking yet. I wonder how hard at the start of verse 17 it was for Ananias to say that first word, brother Saul. But it, he doesn't actually have an option because the gracious Lord Jesus has decided to save Saul. In verse 17, Ananias makes it very clear, in case we missed it, that this is all Jesus' initiative. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me. The Lord Jesus, he's not dead and buried, he's alive and reigning, and he's not using his power just to stop or blind the enemy. He's not going to leave him just wallowing in sorrow and darkness and regret as he slowly starves. No, sovereign grace steps in. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who held back his righteous anger at Saul on the road. Why are you persecuting me? That same Jesus welcomes Saul fully. Notice there's no probation period. Come on, you need to turn your life around for a few weeks before you deserve the Holy Spirit. There's no penance. You need to work your way back to me. You need to pay off some of those crimes. It's just free, full, sovereign grace. Brother Saul. I think sometimes it's only when we see a really shocking example of the kind of person Jesus is willing to save that we actually begin to grasp grace. We saw it with Jonah and the Ninevites a few months ago. The Christian message is one of grace to undeserving people. Last year in 1 Timothy, we, we heard Paul reflecting on this episode. It will come up on the screen, so you don't need to turn to it. But he said this, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might what display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. 
Paul's conversion is a public display of God's grace. Sometimes people struggle to believe that God would accept them. I'm sure there are some people here, even Christians, who still struggle to believe. With my record, with this week, how could God have me? Well, the Lord Jesus saved Paul as an example to all of us. Paul plays us all on side. There is no record too bad for Jesus to wipe clean. He's gracious. So gracious, so kind to the undeserving. And if that's you or a Christian you know, why not spend some time reflecting on that and and helping to apply it to your heart? But I wonder if some of us, as well as needing to apply it to ourselves, need to apply it to others. Those folks we thought of earlier, whether close to home or in public life, who seem implacably opposed to Jesus and, and, and the Bible. Well, Jesus taught his followers that we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We're to reflect the grace of our King. And actually, we've seen a great example in Acts. Um, do you remember what Stephen's last words were? Just look back to the end of chapter 7. Stephen, as he's being martyred, end of chapter 7, cries out with a loud voice, a prayer, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who was he praying for? Well, amongst others, Saul. And it was a prayer that Jesus was glad to answer. It was good. Earlier we prayed for, for opponents of Jesus and his message. I wonder if we're willing regularly to pray for opponents of the biblical gospel in this country. Not just that they be stopped or thwarted or frustrated or turned back, but that they be saved and welcomed, accepted by the Lord Jesus. You see, he is gracious enough. I guess the question is whether we are. Now, it's not easy. As you read on through the back half of the chapter, we won't go through in detail, but you see how hard it was for Christians to accept Paul. Just look at verse 26, for example. 26 over the page. Uh, when he comes to Jerusalem, the disciples were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. It takes the gracious intervention of Barnabas to get Saul accepted in verse 26. But I think you can understand that, can't you? The suspicion. I mean, the revolution in Saul is just so sudden, so stark, so remarkable. It is hard to believe. And actually, in those places where the police state or a private militia is trying to stamp out Christianity, well, I'll tell you, a friend of mine um, worked in a place like that. I won't give you the the, the name of the place. He told me how hard it was when a a new person turned up at church because there was every chance they might be secret police. We actually had coffee once, and um, we were in a big venue. It was early. No one else was there. And a guy came and sat on the table right next to us and pretended to read one piece of newspaper for the whole time and then left when we left. It was all very unnerving. Um, but it's hard in that kind of context of persecution to, to accept someone like Saul. But accept Saul we must as the Christian church because Jesus himself chose him and actually didn't just choose him uh, to save him, but chose to appoint him Look at verse 27, if you're still around there. Verse 27. Look what Barnabas says. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he'd, uh, Saul had seen the Lord 
who spoke to him. Jesus Christ personally handpicked Saul, and not just to save, but to appoint him as another witness, an official apostle. This is our final point. It'll be very brief, but important. Determined Lord Jesus appoints this surprising enemy Saul as his apostle to everyone. Flick back to chapter 9, verse 15, 915. The Lord said to him, Go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus doesn't just powerfully stop Saul. He doesn't just graciously save Saul as a Christian. He appoints Saul as an apostle, one of his witnesses, his spokesman. And actually, from from Acts 13 onwards, the camera will follow Paul on his international missionary journeys. What does that tell you about Jesus? Well, just notice his determination. It is seriously ironic, isn't it? Let's just look back at the picture um, to, to see where the chapter starts and where the chapter ends. That's the start of the chapter. Saul absolutely determined to, to stop this gospel expansion. But by the end of the chapter, well, he becomes uh, Jesus' chief agent to take it further. Um, we'll, we'll, uh, if we click on to the next slide, um, we'll see that. Just look at the difference. The very man who's going to stop it is actually going to spread it, even to the Gentiles. No wonder, in verse 21, people are amazed. Wasn't this the guy who was making havoc in Jerusalem? Wasn't this the guy who was going to drag them all backwards? (laughs) Well, you see the absolute determination of Jesus to get his message out. But there's also a kind of nitty-gritty, ground-level application of Saul's appointment, and it's this. If Jesus chose Saul to speak for him, then we have to accept what Saul, Paul, says. We should treat Paul's words as Jesus' words, just like the other apostles. If he hand-picked Saul as a chosen, spirit-equipped, official witness to the resurrection of Jesus, well, Jesus speaks through him. We treat Paul's words as Jesus' words. Striking how clear the New Testament makes this. In books not written by Paul, so Acts to Peter, you must listen to this man. He's an authentic apostle, which does mean we don't have the right or the authority to ignore bits that we don't like. We can't just say if there's a bit of the New Testament written by Paul, oh, that's just Paul. (laughs) That's not something Jesus said, it's just something Paul said. Tonight, for example... We'll be thinking about the pattern that Jesus lays down for marriage in the letter to the Ephesians. It's written by Paul. It has some radically countercultural stuff. And are we going to ignore the bits we don't like? The bits that don't fit the prevailing mood in our culture? Or do we recognize that Jesus himself chose Paul to speak? And I need to say that explicitly because... Funny enough, Paul is often where some of the battlegrounds are. Those of you who work in academic theology will know this all too well. Across the history of the church, actually, lots of people have had a problem with Paul. Sometimes, early on, they thought he was too lax, too much freedom. Surely you you need to kind of keep the Jewish law. You need to be circumcised if you're going to be forgiven. Now the attack is from the opposite end. He's far too restrictive, what he teaches about human sexuality. 
But we need to know that to have a problem with Paul's words is to have a problem with Jesus' words. Don't separate what, Jesus, what God has joined together. Jesus chose Paul to speak for him. Our time is up. Some of us may be aware um, of uh, people who don't like Paul and therefore give uh, churches who, who do try and stick with the Bible, the whole New Testament, a hard time. What should we think about that? How should we react? Well, I hope we should, it should be no surprise that we should be gracious. Not intimidated, Jesus is sovereign, but gracious. Jesus is gracious. We don't write people off. We pray for them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I sometimes hear Christians speaking as if the West in general, or Scotland in particular, is a bit of a write-off spiritually. You know, after years of sidelining Jesus and his words in the Bible, we're kind of getting what we deserve. We're obviously under God's judgment. We're, our society's fracturing, the church is shrinking, politics is paralyzed and factional. I mean, we're just getting what we deserve. That's what happens if you push God away. Now, I think a lot of that might actually be true. But how as Christians should we react? Do we just sit back, rub our hands together and say, well, we told you so. That's what you get for distrusting the Bible. Or in these last days, are we gracious like our master? If he was willing to save Saul, I have no problem believing that he might turn around this country just as radically. See, Jesus' sovereign grace, it was our only hope. And so in humility and confidence, we should have hope for anyone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that by your Spirit, you would make us like your Son, gracious. And we pray you give us confidence in your Son and his great determination to take forgiveness to the ends of the earth, the ends of this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.